Welcome to The uh, the Way We Work. And today we're gonna talk about uh, innovation because it's a, it's a big topic, everyone talks about it all the time. And so we've got some people here who know an awful lot about that topic and uh, we'll just have a good conversation about that. So as a reminder, you got myself, so Ben Weber, the co-founder and CEO of Humanize and your host. We've got uh, Justin Steinman and we've got uh, Rebecca Weber, which is an interesting last name. Is there some relation here? I may have married you. Interesting. That's, yeah, and no, I seem to remember that. Um, but anyway, thanks for for joining for joining us here. And uh, maybe Justin, you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, your background? Sure. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Excited yeah. to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm Justin Steinman. I'm the head of product management for Etna's commercial business, which basically means I lead the team that builds all the products and offers that go to plan sponsors. In other words, the people at your company or any other company who decide what insurance benefits they offer to their employees. Great. Becca? And I am here as well working on the disruptive innovation portfolio. So we try to take the uh, craziest ideas and make them happen. That's great. And so given that background, I think you're both uh, uh, have probably thought about uh, a lot about all the different things that can influence um, innovation or how innovative a company can be. Um, you may want to talk through some of the uh, some of the factors you think are most important. Sure. In terms of you know ideas or how we organize, how can I best answer that question? Yeah, I you? mean, maybe start first with how you're organized, mm -hmm. um, and then we can get into other topics as well. So when I think about a product lifecycle, I need to really have three different vectors or timeframes or horizons of product. Right? You need your short-term enhancements. The stuff that, you know, existing products in any business, right, uh, whether it's our plan design, a PPO or an HMO or our, uh, you know, consulting services, you need kind of the basic enhancements to those products. Those are short term. You generally try to get those out in three months, six months. If you're a software company, that is like the updates that come on your Apple Store application. That's one thing. Not exciting, but really necessary to keep your customers happy. Then you've got the second area, which is you've got new product introductions. Those I generally think of kind of 18 months in, maybe five to six months out and 18 months in that, you know, good solid 12 month period. That's your chance you can do new things that are different. A lot of times they build on what you have and other times they are not market moving opportunities. But again, you've got to agree because every company needs to enhance, add new products in. Right. And then you've got your third vector, which is the area that Rebecca leads for me, which is around disruptive innovation, which is you say, OK, take away your current revenue targets, take away all your current constraints and start five years out. What's the world going to look like? It's going to look very different than where we are today. So if I get to put on my fun hat and be a venture capitalist and I'm not asking Rebecca to justify this feature added on to that or even building a business case for a new product that I want to sell to a plan sponsor next week, but rather, how is the nature of work going to be different? The nature of employment going to be different? How can we use big data in a new way that we're not anything close today? Clean sheet of paper, come back and give me a business case so that maybe you're actually going to put some of my existing products out of business today. Because if I don't disrupt myself, someone else is going to do it. 
And so that's where I think about it, those organizationally, the three different time horizons. And so you're essentially creating different parts of the organization to deal with those different time horizons. Absolutely. And, Not only that, you need, different, yeah. you need different skill sets and you yeah. need different people. Yeah. And, you know, someone who's thinking about disruptive innovation is not going to be a good local product manager thinking about what the feature functions need to be added to our HMO plan in California. What gets that person excited, and that's an important, super important job, managing that product day to day and embedded with your sales team, how do I hit my revenue target like this month? Yeah. It's a very different skill set than thinking, okay, clean sheet of paper, what are we going to have on the shelf in 2024? If I gave either of those people the other person's assignment, they'd probably run screaming out of the room. And so you got to hire for different skill sets for different people. And then I think, Rebecca, that question goes over to you in terms of as you, you know, you know, set up an organization whose remit is to do things farther out. um, How do you think about structuring both that team as well as putting yourself in a place where you can think that far in advance? Yeah, well, the, the people side, obviously, that's a lot of where Humanize's interest is. And um, <clears throat> clearly, that's one of the most important things to be organizing for. There's the team itself who's working on those projects. But just as importantly is everything, all the connections that you're making internally to the company as well as externally and getting those external inputs and both the formal relationships internally as well as through in formal channels so that you're heavily connected with some of those other kinds of people that Justin was talking about within his organization. And then there's always the really important players like legal or for us actuarial, where you need to make sure that you've designed those relationships so that you can have really quick cycle times of connecting with all of those players. And that's one of the most important pieces of infrastructure to get set up quickly. But I think that as especially an organization like Aetna, where you have all these different moving pieces and where it is, um, you know, a large organization, obviously within the U.S., but then, you know, a lot of the companies that we work with as well are, you know, have hundreds of thousands of employees, are global in nature. And I, what I typically see is some of their problems is they might have one group over here that's doing something that no one else finds out about. And then it's hard to get that bumped up to a level of visibility at a, um, at a company-wide level. Um, how have you grappled with that? And again, there's probably not a, there, I mean, there's not a single solution for that, but what have you found to be effective to, to getting over some of those barriers? That's a great problem. And it's a problem that I was actually very conscious of when I set up our innovation team and indeed our whole product management structure. I've only been at Aetna a little over two years. And when I came here, product management was really dispersed across the company. And the local product managers were really embedded in the field. They were reporting up to the sales team. There really was no long-term innovation team at all. There, at one point, several years ago, had been innovation labs, which is exactly what it sounds like. Innovation labs, off in a corner, thinking up really cool things, kind of reporting up through the system, but not part of the core product management team. So when it came time for innovation labs to come up with a new product, everyone kind of looked at them like cross-eyed, like, who are you and where is this idea coming from? And there was none of those relationships and there was no understanding of the operating mechanisms, how the business runs day to day. So when we created Rebecca's team, we purposely put it inside the product strategy organization. And so she has a peer who, for example, is responsible for building new products with CVS after the CVS Aetna merger. 
the timeline for creating new products with CVS is kind of in that 12 month, 12 to 18 month period. We've got to get stuff up on the shelf now to, right. to prove to customers that there's value here. And I'm confident that we are going to get that stuff up on the shelf. He sits in the same staff meeting as Rebecca. He has a different timeline, but a lot of the same tools, for example, the same financial model. There's no reason to build two different financial models. That Aetna has one way that we do finances. So why don't we have the same financial and membership buildup model that they both can use? Also, by having Rebecca and her team be embedded in the business, she learns by osmosis how the business works. She doesn't have her own product delivery team. So this is a very technical product. There's a lot of back office infrastructure. She's intentionally reliant on our regular product delivery team to get her ideas commercialized. Why? Because while she's free and unencumbered to think of great new things, when it comes time to actualize them, she's got to bring the rest of the business along with her. Now, when the product delivery team comes to me and screams and says, I don't have time to deal with 2024. I've got to get revenue product for 2019 out the door. I turn to them and go, no, sorry. You actually have to dedicate somebody. It has to be a strong performer to work with Rebecca. So pick one of your top talent, give them this opportunity to grow and work. And then I get some of that disruptive innovation DNA back into my day-to-day business operations. And so it's kind of a mutual reinforcing but it also prevents the disruptive innovation team from going off and spinning and cycling, you know, out into a completely different state or part of the world. And it seems like that's one of those old school principles that need to get put to bed. I mean, you have all these traditional R&D organizations where you've got some lab, you know, off somewhere where you could have a lot of extremely talented people who churn out a lot of things. And it, and it seems like in the past that was really doable. You had Bell Labs, you had lots of other folks. Uh, and obviously the, they achieved a lot. But it does seem that the complexity of the stuff that we do today has really surpassed the ability to have a cloistered away individual or small team that doesn't have this interaction um, didn't really produce something that's valuable. Um, and, and Rebecca, then I guess I want to throw this to you as, as well, because are, are the people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, are they all um, here in Wellesley? Are they in different places? And then what are some of the challenges with um, assuming some people are remote with, uh, with collaborating with those people? Yeah, so the immediate team is here in Wellesley, and that's by design, because there is a lot of problem-solving work that's definitely facilitated by being able to get in a room. At the same time, there's an enormous amount of people who we interact with who are all over the country. And um, I think that's where it's about setting up those relationships that I was talking about earlier and knowing who the go-tos are, being able to create those digital spaces to, um, to get those inputs. And the osmosis that Justin was talking about earlier, there's a lot of inputs that are important to get in your brain to be able to use for that idea making later, but that you have to get that foundation of all that information first. And it's important to note that while Rebecca sits with her core team here in Wellesley, her core team physically sits with the rest of our product manager team. So if they want to get up and get a cup of coffee and stretch their legs and talk to somebody, they can be talking to somebody who's building enhancements so they can understand the business. Or they can go and work the team doing our partner product manager and say, oh, I heard you're doing this new partnership. Talk to me about it. And so I'm a huge believer in co-location and sitting with these people. So Rebecca's got her core team working together, but they get that day-to-day interaction over coffee, lunch, whatever, stretch your legs. That really, I think, helps bring it together. 
And I think that's an interesting point because a lot of companies assume that, oh, well, we have all these collaboration tools today. You know, I can, of course, technologically call anyone in my company. I can chat with anyone in my company. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about the, the value of whether it's that serendipitous interaction, whether it's that, that learning by osmosis, that, again, it really seems like the technological tools we have at our disposal just don't do a good job of that. And I think that this becomes more and more apparent as we talk about especially really large organizations, right? It's one thing when you know you have a small company and you got 20 people or 50 people you're all going to be in one place or even if you're not you probably know everybody else anyway once you start to cross these larger thresholds that just doesn't doesn't happen um and i mean i guess the question though is as as etna thinks about this and maybe even throughout your career i mean this is sort of for both of you that it, it seems like i've seen lots of examples of companies not appreciate that and is this just something as you came into Aetna that there was already an appreciation for that here? Is it something that you had to sell internally? Um, I guess, how, how can you build up that kind of appreciation in, um, in these large organizations? So the appreciation for innovation was here, but it was kind of, hey, we need new innovation. Justin, go figure it out. Yeah. It wasn't like, all right, here's money, here's the budget. It was, you've got to get the product life cycle up and running. We hadn't really done a lot of innovation on the plan sponsor side of the business. We had been going, so health insurance is really a B2B2C transaction. You've got to sell your plan sponsor who decides, yes, I'm going to offer Aetna, not Blue Cross, or you know, United, not Aetna. And then as the consumer, you choose, okay, I want this plan that's been offered to me. And, you know, a large company like a Home Depot or an Amazon will offer, you know, generally Aetna and United side by side, and the member will have a choice or the employer will have a choice, which one do I want to do? So we have to do the B2B piece to get the plan sponsor to offer us, and then the B2C piece to get the consumer to pick us. We at Aetna, before I had gotten here, had really over-rotated onto the B2C side of things. The, the consumerization of health insurance and health care is absolutely happening. But we had gotten so excited around building digital tools that we had kind of forgotten our innovation around the B2B part of the transaction. And so there was a recognition that we've got to come back and get that back and going and say, so it was, Justin, you need to build a pipeline. We didn't have a real pipeline of enhancements, short-term or long-term products going on. It was rather get it going, get the flywheel building and have a process put in place for that. And so I went off and I hired a bunch of people with different skill sets to put that in place, realizing that I do have a uh, national organization. And so you got to have the right, again, it comes back to the skill sets around what they want to be doing and where they need to be. So one of the problems that we had, candidly, was health insurance is a very local thing. The regulations in California are different than the regulations in Texas, different than the regulations in Florida. However, we had all of our called local product managers. Most of them were sitting in Hartford because that's where Aetna was headquartered. And so I would fly. If I was a local product manager, I would fly to my state once a quarter. You're not getting – you can't be in the flow. Meanwhile, the market presidents are all sitting in their states, and they're the people with the sales targets on their head. And yes, you're over the phone, but you're not there. So one of the changes that we have made over the past year is we've made a push to get the local market product managers to be sitting in the local markets. And we've done that naturally through as people have left, as someone left in Hartford for a different job or transferred, we didn't backfill them in Hartford, we backfilled them in Texas. 
or we backfilled that person in Florida. Some people relocated, actually took an opportunity to go, you know, from one city to another. And then uh, that's one set of things we've done, the local product managers. So that's the dispersal piece. And you got to have them embedded. And those people do feed in to the corporate infrastructure. Yeah. So I also want to revisit a, a topic you threw out a little bit earlier, and you talked about um, the importance of of analytics and obviously in, in, in general and um, for innovation specifically. And obviously that's a, that's a topic that I care a lot about because essentially what we've done is collect an awful lot of data on how people work. Um, it's interesting when at least I think about that as it relates to innovation because innovation tends to be this thing where it's incredibly hard to put you know, a hard quantitative metric on, for example, how innovative a thing is. But it sounds like you're talking about using analytics, again, not to obviously come up with the ideas, but really to, um, well, and maybe you could talk more just about how you see them fit in um, to this whole process. So healthcare as an industry is awash in data and lacking in insight. Right? I think uh, you look, this is the week of JP Morgan right now, and if you look at the big trends coming out of San Francisco as you read Modern Healthcare or any of the other rags that are out there, they're all talking about everybody's trying to do artificial intelligence, use analytics, how can we get data? Well, let's be honest, probably the people with the single most amount of data in the healthcare industry are the health insurers. Right? We have got, let's just be concerned, we have 25 million members or so that Aetna insurers. Carl, we got 30 years of claim data on all of those people. We know an awful lot about you, but we don't know what to do with it, and it's all kind of sitting there. And so one of the challenges, and it's not just in our product innovation uh, and what we're selling to plant sponsors, but this is an initiative across all of Aetna, which is how do we make better use of that data? So it's how do we come up with better care plans? How do we develop what's called the best next, next best action that we can recommend to you? And so there is a huge team of data scientists thinking across the entire organization. What our team is thinking about, and Rebecca in particular, and she can talk a little bit about this, is how we use some of that data that we have at our disposal to generate new insights that could potentially differentiate us from the competition and or use that data to generate new offers and programs that will potentially pick a large employer and say, hey, I like Aetna's offer because they're using data yeah. instead of you know one of the comp- competitors, local or national. Yeah. So, Rebecca, maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, and I, and I think that insight point is exactly right because there's a lot that we can do in our role as the payer to help connect people with the right information, the right choices, um, and and play that guidance role, and that infrastructure is where the work is, so that we can take that data and actually make make something with it. It is interesting you bring up infrastructure, and and Justin, you're bringing up the organizational structure earlier, and it's funny because these are sort of the unsexy sides of innovation. People don't like to think about the importance of those things, of having the ability to pull you know metrics out of large amounts of data, or the ability to have different Time horizon, teams with different time horizons of innovation. And those things, you know, to both your points, are just so important because if you don't have those, those by themselves don't create everything, but they're a necessary condition for getting to that next stage. Well, I think the, the, the sexy side of innovation, people want to know what the next cool idea is and, and they want to be able to um, show up and brainstorm in a session and come up with magic. 
And I think that what helps get to that magic is the right inputs, first of all, and those inputs being um, from a lot of different sources, from internal data is a great source, from analogies about what other industries are doing, from just really understanding customer problems and getting all of those inputs into the mix so that you as an individual or very importantly, a group of people in a brainstorm session or something like that can pull that all together and put those things next to each other and, and come up with, that's where you come up with the magic. And as you'll recall from this morning, since I am married to him, um, when I came up with a brilliant idea, uh, I was half asleep um, because our three-year-old has a very high fever and I wasn't really uh, sleeping last night, I came up with a very brilliant idea that was a mashup between something that happens in a foreign country and something that CBS has done in the past. And I think it, it really is those taking those disparate inputs and uh, having them in the right um, environment to, to let them become something. So new. you're saying we should, we should make sure our three-year-old continues to have a fever and keeps you up all night. That Got it. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Um, Justin, maybe then, right, throwing that to you. Go ahead. I think an important thing, I can tell you one of Rebecca's least favorite phrases is, hey, Rebecca, I just came back from a customer visit. So I've got a theory and a saying that I say all the time, you can't do product management from behind the desk. So every quarter, I pick a city or I pick a market and I call the market president and say, hi, I'm showing up on your doorstep on Monday and I'm leaving on Thursday. What are you doing with me? Yeah. And to their credit, they always set up the most amazing sets of customer visits. And they're not all like the, you know, the large national accounts. I want to go talk to the five-employee company, right? Or I want to go talk to the broker. I want to see a variety of companies from a variety of industries and a variety of sizes. And also, again, have the brokers and the consultants, you know, the large people and the small people. And from those visits, I start to synthesize different problems and different pain points and come back and say, hey, this is a really big problem these people are talking about. And then I kind of dump that on Rebecca's desk. These are, you know, 10%, 12% baked ideas, yeah. right? A huge realm of like, all right, there's a problem. I, there's something here. Go figure it out, right? And then I go and I run onto my next crazy thing. And she's like, oh, God, here we go again. And, you know, she unfortunately has that problem of unfortunate job of coming back to me and telling me, you know, Justin, that idea, it wasn't a good one. Yeah. And that's got to be hard for her, I'm yeah. sure, to come back and tell me that. But, you know, that's what I want to hear. I know that out of 10 ideas, nine and sometimes nine and a half of them aren't going to be any good. The problem is I don't know which one is which. Yeah. So I'm constantly trying to spew off these ideas based on customers and looking for Rebecca to provide that next level of rigor and insight and analytics and beat on the idea and morph it into something that actually can work based on those insights. We talk a lot about working on the efficient frontier. And so if you can in your head, and this is hard on a podcast to think about, but on one access you put time and complexity to execute, and on the other access, you put ability and, sorry, impact in the market. And you kind of draw this line of all the way out, and you want to have ideas that are along the whole axis, right? You want to have a couple really big swings that may be really hard to figure out. But you also kind of want to have a few wins so that no one's ever looking at, and this is a corporate world, yeah. we're looking at it going, hey, Justin, let that innovation function do you got funny. You know, you got four people and you're paying them how much money and what have they done for that? And I don't want to get in that conversation. Yeah. So we got to make sure that we're getting, you know, a couple doubles out the door, yeah. getting a pile or two out the door while protecting judiciously 
the ability to swing for that big home run. And that's a large part of my job is protecting the, and keeping this innovation team safe. And it's interesting because that's, it's almost analogous to if you look at like the VC world, which uh, obviously I've become more familiar with over time, where the one of the main strategies is you make a couple of bets that maybe these become multi-billion dollar companies, but they could also just totally flame out. Um, you've got others, which I'm reasonably sure this could be something. I don't know how big, but it can be something. And that way I can justify my existence and my investors don't shut me down. Now those are external versus you know internal, but I think this, this also general point of first keeping those stakeholders happy, but then also when you're talking about getting to the point where you are coming up with and figuring out what ideas to execute that you're, you're pulling externally from a diverse number of external sources. You're also spending time on your own to just spitball and maybe those things turn into something maybe they don't. You're iterating internally to then filter through this, this stuff and to you know, sift out the crap and then find, find the good stuff that, um, again, it's not just your you're in some amazing zone where every single idea you come up with is amazing. But, but people think that that's the case, right? People think that the, the most, you know, innovative people in history are just these people who all they did or all they do all day is just come up with amazing ideas in a cabin by themselves. And that's just not how really this well, works. Everyone's favorite company now is Amazon. And there's dozens of big bets that didn't pan out and, and dozens that Fire phone? Exactly. Um, and, but, you know, Justin, I very much don't hate when you come back with that. And it's, it's not necessarily for the idea, but it's for the insight. Because the qualitative insights that you can come back with from those kinds of meetings, that I'm just going to give a shout out to qualitative insight in general, because I do think that people under, undervalue that you know they want to see the spreadsheets and the market research reports. But sometimes what you just need is a deep personal understanding of somebody's story and, and why it was difficult for them. And um, maybe the first solution that we come up with isn't the right one, but the next one is. Because if you understand the problem you're solving for, you can keep iterating the solution. Yeah, and that's a really important to think about, particularly at, at an insurance company. We can spreadsheet ourselves to death. I mean, we got actuaries up the wazoo around here. And it's the culture of an insurance company to be risk averse. Yeah. And so you take any idea and you want to grind the spreadsheet down to you're sure this product is going to work. And in what we're trying to do here with our disruptive innovation, that won't work. And so the challenge is to grind down to a level where people will leave me alone and let me do what I want to do and let us get our idea out the door, but not grind it down so much that the innovation goes away because we've got to learn pivot, learn, pivot, and adjust as we go. And that's a really big challenge within big corporations. And I think that's the critical point. And this this is even beyond innovation, right? The people, we like to pretend that we know what the right answer is or that this is going to succeed or and, and this is everything from a new product idea to, uh, you know, a lot of what we encounter are, you know, people doing reorgs or they're building a new headquarters. But we don't know. We have hypotheses. And the key is, right, to get people to a level so you're, you're pretty sure you're not doing something incredibly stupid. Wow. And we're going to try it out, and maybe it doesn't work, right? And right, the challenge is organizationally being at a point where you can do that and admit it might not work, right? and that's okay, and you're learning from it. Because the key is being able to iterate quickly, and, then, and that's what you brought up, is that it's, you know, 
even knowing complete context of an idea, um, we can't foresee everything that's going to happen. And that it's much better to be able to make decisions and execute twice as fast than it is to be 20% more right. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's, it, it's hard for, you know, really data-driven organizations that have gone too far down that, that path. Right? And a lot of what we do, it's about putting, you know, numbers, like hard numbers on previously fuzzy things. And so people assume that when we talk about putting numbers to you know, doing a reorg, that that means that we don't care about qualitative insight. But it's, it's that combination of them, because numbers can help. Um, you, know, you predict a certain thing, uh, never with 100% accuracy, but no, they're never going to come with those. Things. Exactly. Yeah. I always say the only thing I know about every org design they've ever done and ever will do is that I got it wrong. Yeah. No, and that's, again, I think it, it's so important to admit that because everyone, when you go to these large organizations, or, or it can come with, again, and I think as you brought up Amazon, Becca, with their, you know, with their new products, whether it's Fire Phone or things that have, that have failed, um, right? It's the important thing is to keep trying new things, um, which they do very quickly. Um, There's even things that directly compete with each other, like yeah. uh, Prime now and fresh and those are direct competitors actually and we'll see what wins or both and that'll be interesting yeah all right and so then to to wrap up we're, we're just into 2019 so we're recording this right at the beginning of the year um any particular priorities that you can talk about in public for the year uh you know maybe around uh, uh sort of new types of innovative programs so we're going to be a little cautious that's, on that's some right. of that stuff, right. right? I will tell you that from my point across all of commercial product, we are focused a lot on trying, again, with the CVS acquisition just having closed like in early December of 2018, there is an immense amount of pressure to bring to the market some of the early programs and some of the early wins to show a plan sponsor and a corporation. Hey, this is some of the real benefit that we're doing to take cost out of the healthcare system and keep your employees healthier, Right. Larry Merle, the CEO of the combined company, talks a lot about the opportunity to transform healthcare from the inside. I firmly believe that's why I chose to come and work here. And so you're going to see a lot of uh, stuff coming out the door from us around that. We have a whole team of people. From Rebecca's perspective, you know, she has just launched her first pilot program, which I am extremely excited about. And she's going on her first sales call for that tomorrow. But I'm not going to talk about what the product is or who she's going on the sales call with. But uh, – my fingers crossed, and we're going to do everything in our power, and I'm sure it'll pivot throughout the year. But to end the year with that pilot being funded into a fully developed and funded product that we then take to market. And then, you know, we just recently sat down last week and talked about three other areas that we want her and her team to explore. Some of them are fairly far out. And, you know, it's not going to be enough just for her to get that pilot done. It's all right, cool. That's what you did yesterday. Now you got to come up and get these next two or three areas out and think of what we're going to be doing. Uh, and then I think the third thing that I'm trying to do is sprinkle some of that DNA culture across the organization. Because you can sometimes have a fear that, oh, Rebecca and the innovation team, they get to do all the cool stuff, man. And my job, oh, you don't want that, right? You want to have everybody engaged. We've got 300 plus people working in product here. We want to make sure that they all feel like they're part of that. And so how do you take some of that innovation DNA and sprinkle it across the organization? Yeah, there we go. So um, it's interesting. Again, we're, we'll wrap up in a second, but it is, it's going to be very interesting to see 
that that interface, especially with CBS, because you've got two organizations you're trying to make into one, mm -hmm. and there are uh, all those very interesting challenges. So I think it's going to be exciting to see what comes out of it, and I'm sure it's not going to be smooth sailing the whole way. But I think that that's uh, you know if you can when you get that right, that's just when really interesting stuff starts to happen. Yeah. So. Um, with that, thank you both for, for making the time. And uh, yeah, again, looking forward to the next, uh, next year. Thanks for having us.